0: Thanks for watching today at WildwoodChurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. It's our third and final sermon in this text here uh, called Premises and Promises. In this text, Paul makes three premises and, and three promises that logically follow based on those premises but you know, this, this, uh, the last 24 hours has been, man, a similar emotional and spiritual mountain peak to what Paul was experiencing in this text. You Remember, I, I've introduced this text before that this was kind of a, a climax for Paul, an emotional and spiritual climax as he's recalling the great gospel. And he gets here to this mountain peak and he's proclaiming these truths and these promises. And this past weekend was a, was a wonderful uh, spiritual and emotional climax for me. Uh, yesterday, I got to be part of a wedding in Peoria. One of our couples, uh, one of our young couples, uh, got married yesterday. And I, I thought to myself, I was sitting next to my wife of 22 years. And I thought, man, to be starting over again. Uh, I would not want to do that. But, but what, a, what a beautiful thing for a young couple who loves Jesus, and you could tell they love Jesus. It was, not, it was not a Christian ceremony in name only. It was a worship ceremony. It was a worship service. Uh, this young couple loves Jesus. They put Jesus at the center of their wedding, and I have no doubt they'll put Jesus at the center of their marriage. And then this afternoon, I get to be on the other end of that and celebrate a vow renewal ceremony of one of our couples, one of our elders, uh, the sallows, 50 years of putting Jesus at the center of their marriage and striving and failing, I have no doubt, and striving and failing and striving again. In 50 years, they get to, we get to celebrate with them, 50 years of commitment to Jesus and to one another. And then to, to watch here, our youth band. I mean, I could not be more proud of our, of our teenagers. One, you forget that they're, they're youth. I mean, if you just close your eyes and you just worship, then it's just a band. It's just our worship team. And, and that says that Wildwood Worship uh, has a great future. And many of these young people will graduate from high school and they'll just come onto our worship team. Uh, and what a blessing. And so here I am on this kind of emotional and spiritual climax on a weekend. But even yesterday, in between the wedding and the reception, I had to take a pastoral call because our people still suffer. A woman called me, she's been, uh, she and her husband have had uh, physical issues for the last eight months, and yesterday was a, was a setback, and back in the ER, and, and, and you can tell that this woman is, uh, is, is at her wit's end. And so even, even in this emotional climax, I'm reminded that we live in a really broken world. And that's exactly what Paul remembers. Even in his emotional climax of a, of a passage here, he does not let us get far from the reality of life in a sinful, broken world. So let's read here, Romans 8, 31 through 39. Actually, we're just going to go 35 through 39. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, it has been an amazing weekend for me. And Lord, here we are at a, at a climax of, of recognizing, of, of, of celebrating uh, marriages, both those that have begun and those that are lasted 50 years that have put Christ at the center. And we celebrate life in our worship team with young people coming in. You've blessed us with talent and you've blessed us with devotion. And we come to you, Lord, celebrating and and we come rejoicing, but we cannot be far from recognizing that we live in a broken world. A world where there's suffering, a world where sometimes it feels like we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered and sometimes our heart cry is awake why are you sleeping O lord i pray lord that you would meet us in those moments and remind us of the truth of your word that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us we pray these things in jesus name amen So in verse 35, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? One of the threats of the accuser, Satan, is that we don't really belong to Christ. He he tries to deny that we have the right to enter into God's presence. And the reality is he uses our sin as the justification. Perhaps this failure will be the final straw that causes our God to reject us. Perhaps this is the one thing that God won't forgive. Our human accusers would also seek to separate us from the love of Christ, either by condemning us or by denying Christ altogether, mocking us. You know, accusations can be devastating, But Christians face worse things than accusation. Paul raises the temperature of what we might face from those who stand against us. That's what he says in verse 31, who can stand against us. And he begins to unpack this throughout the rest of the verse. He raises the temperature of what Christians might experience from those who stand against us. When he asks us, shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Shall these things separate us from Christ? Hardly. If there's anything that solidifies Christ's love for us, is that he is with us in the midst of these things. Far from removing us from his love, these things become the proof of his love. Next week we're going to begin our Advent series called Do You See What I See? And we're going to begin the first the first week with the incarnation found in John 1 1 through 4. The word of flesh dwelt the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became like us, he dwelt among us. God suffered with us and died for us in order to give us life. And so far from separating us from his love, these things actually unite us to him in his love. Now, while Paul's list is not exhaustive, it is representative. He categorizes several forms of suffering that are common to the Christian life. Tribulation and distress are both a common, uh, kind of a broad, general suffering tribulation and distress general suffering mental physical emotional financial suffering in a broken world now persecution is a little bit more directed and a little bit more deliberate often persecution leads to famine nakedness danger or sword because christians lose their jobs their homes their land, their ability to provide for themselves and to meet their basic necessities. And thus they become destitute. That's what we believe Paul had in mind when he said famine and nakedness, the inability to meet basic necessities. But sadly, persecution is elevated beyond destitution for many Christians. And they're subject to danger or sword. In Paul's day, Rome preferred the sword as a means of execution. Christians have suffered unspeakable atrocities over the the last two millennia. But these things lose their power when a person places their hope in the love of Jesus Christ. The original readers of Paul's letter had likely already experienced the first few on his list. And I have no doubt that you all have experienced the first few on Paul's list. Tribulation, distress, even persecution. And some of his readers would soon have to endure all of them, including danger and the sword of Rome. Just about 10 years After Paul wrote to the Romans, Emperor Nero burned Christians at the stake to light his garden parties, and that began 300 years of systemic Christian persecution by Rome, including Christians being tossed to the lions and the bears in the Colosseum where they were torn apart as public spectacle for entertainment of the Romans. Here's what Paul knew was true for Christians elsewhere. The Christians in Jerusalem had already been experiencing this. He knew that it would be true for the Romans at some point, and it has now been the lived experience for more Christians in the last 120 years, the last two centuries, the 19th, and the, 19th, the 20th and 21st centuries, then in all 19 centuries combined, he says in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes from Psalm 44, a psalm of lament this list of sufferings that paul has shared with us in verse 35 is not theoretical christians really do suffer persecution as i said more christians have been martyred in the 19th and excuse me the 20th and 21st centuries than in all 19th centuries combined life for christians is getting worse not better. Jesus warned us that this would be the case. Peter warned us, Paul warns us. He quotes here from Psalm 44, it's a lament that God had evidently abandoned his people even though they had not abandoned him. That's that's how it felt. Lord, we've been faithful. We, we, we are your people. We're trying to do what you want us to do. And yet, Lord, we are, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's a raw appeal to the Lord to act on their behalf. And I want you to notice here that in this climactic experience, this climactic passage where Paul is on a spiritual high, he quotes a psalm of lament, a psalm of crying out to the Lord, God, why are you turning a blind eye towards your people? Why do you regard us as sheep to be slaughtered? And that's the psalm that Paul uses to quote, uh, that, that he quotes to encourage Christians on this spiritual mountaintop. Paul wanted his readers to know that they were not exempt from suffering. And that suffering was not punishment. Tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and danger and nakedness and sword. It's not punishment. This is inevitable for Christians. It's the path of sonship. It's what it means to be a child of God. I appreciate R.C. Sproul's perspective here when he says, Our Lord, the great shepherd, became the sheep, the docile one who went willingly to slaughter. We participate in that vocation by participating in his humiliation, his tribulation. And his death. In other words, we become like him in his suffering. That's the reality of following Jesus. Jesus said, Is the student better than the master? No, we become like Jesus in our suffering. Jesus warned us that if the world hated him, it is sure to hate us. In fact, he warned that it's a problem if the whole world thinks well of you. If the whole world thinks well of you, you're obviously not taking a stand on anything because the world is diametrically opposed to God and to the things of God. So this is simply a fact of life for the Christian. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, that's such a raw statement because the psalmist is not saying that the world regards them as sheep to be slaughtered, but God regards them as sheep to be slaughtered. He's vocalizing this overwhelming feeling that God seems to be indifferent to the sufferings of the people, which is why the cry is, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Lord. You ever feel that way? You ever wonder if the Lord is even listening to your petitions and your cries of pain? If He's ever going to intervene in your life and make a way where there seems to be no way? Well, you would find yourself in good company with the psalmist of Psalm 44. We should not think that it's strange to face trials of various kinds, Peter says. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. The stark reality is that you and I need to come to grips with this now before we endure persecution and famine and danger or sword. This is normal in a world that hates God. We need not lose heart when it comes, though. That's why Paul is warning them, and that's why Paul is warning us, don't lose heart when it comes. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. It shouldn't be lost on us that Paul is speaking of persecution during this emotional and spiritual climax. It's a mountain peak experience for Paul, and he, hi- he highlights the sober reality that Christians are persecuted. The faithful Christian does not deny this fact. We don't live in delusion and denial. Instead, we live sober-minded lives. Our hope is not contingent upon the absence of suffering. The joy of a Christian is not tied to ease in this life. But rather, as Paul says in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The Greek word translated more than conquerors is nikao," literally hyper-conquerors. And in Latin, it's super-venchismos, super-conquerors. R.C. Sproul translates that, supermen. There's a reason for us to rejoice in the sober-minded reality that suffering is part of the Christian life. It is this. Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Robert Mounts comments, it is the love of Christ that supports and enables the believer to face adversity and to conquer it. They are victors who have found from experience that God is ever-present in their trials and that the love of Christ will empower them to overcome all the obstacles of life. But how do you suppose that that kind of lesson is learned best? It is not in the context of a Bible study. To learn the reality that that God is with you in the fire. That is not best learned in the context of a Bible study. It is best learned in hardship. It is learned in spiritual battle. It is learned in tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. Bible study prepares you to suffer. Hardship convinces you that God is with you. Our victory is in Christ, not in being warmly embraced by the world that is perishing in its rejection of The Creator. If there was ever a Romans 1 world, you know that we are living in it now. A world that has unhitched itself from truth and logic and reason. We're living in a world that has utterly embraced the cult of self. And our victory is not found in being whimsical though many Christians hide behind whimsy to cover over their fear of man. We're not victorious because we have found a way to make everyone who hates God be fond of us. No, we're victorious through him who loved us in all these things. We do not seek to avoid these things. It is in these things that we are more than conquerors. Christian, you and I need to gain some resilience and some resolve. The church has grown soft and we've become complacent and our culture shows for it. The social political temperature is rising in America and it will not be long before Christians learn by experience what they have been taught by Scripture, For everyone will be salted with fire, Jesus said. In this peculiar statement of Jesus found only in Mark, Jesus indi- indicates that every Christian is going to endure the refining process. We're going to be purified, and the biblical picture of purification is fire. So do not be anxious, and do not fear, Do not grow weary, do not fret, do not be discouraged, but rather rejoice as the temperature rises and the opposition intensifies against you and your experience of suffering becomes more real and less theoretical. Do not get discouraged, but rather lift up your eyes. Your salvation is at hand. Jesus said, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It is our desire to be found faithful at his return. Amen? Amen. You know, people ask me, well, what what is your view of the end times? And I have a view And I think I can support it scripturally, but I'm not going to die on that hill. You've heard me joke before that I'm a pan-millennial. It's all going to pan out. I don't know how Jesus is going to do it. I don't know if we're in the millennial reign, if we're waiting for the millennial reign. I don't know if there's going to be a rapture. I don't know if we're in the tribulation. All I know is that I'm waiting for Jesus. My eyes are up. And until I see him, I know what my job is. My job is to be found faithful. My job is to have my lamp lit. My job is to be busy doing what Jesus called me to do, to stand the ground and wait until he comes. Amen? That's what we need to be focused on. And listen, do I sense that, that Jesus is coming back? I sense he's coming back. Lord, I want him to come back. I'm ready for him to come back, but as long as he stays, it means that someone who has been called into glorious eternal life, has not yet responded to the gospel. Because the moment that that happens, the last of those happen, Jesus comes back. That's what he promised. Which means that the fact that I'm still standing here preaching to you, that there is someone within the sound of my voice, most likely, that needs to know Jesus. And someone within the sphere of your influence needs to know Jesus. So we want to be found faithful as we wait for Jesus to come back. We love his return. We long for his return. You know, a Christian is someone who loves the return of Jesus. The Bible says that, that those who love his return will see him. Do you love his return? Do you even think about his return? Is that even a concept? Do you, do you know that Jesus is coming back, and do you long for that? Do you long for life with him? But we love his return only because he loved us. If Jesus did not love us first, we would be terrified at his return. There would be absolutely no reason for us to hope in Jesus' return if he did not first love us. And likewise, you and I are only conquerors through him who loved us. We are not conquerors because we in ourselves are victorious, strong, resilient. No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. His love for us is what we owe all of this to. His love for us is why we can say in the midst of tribulation and distress and persecution, nakedness, famine, danger, or sword, that we should hold our heads up, that we should be eagerly anticipating our reward because Jesus loved us. You know, God is not compelled to save us. You know that, right? God, No one twisted God's arm and said, you've got to make a way for those sinful people to be brought into your kingdom. No, it's because God loves us. And it's upon the basis of his love that we stand in the face of opposition and even in persecution and death, knowing that God has graciously and lovingly received us into his family, adopted us as his children, and ultimately will welcome us into his home. That is the hope of a Christian. Your hope is not that you're going to have homes and you're going to be well-dressed and you're going to have everything that you want and even everything that you think you need in this life. That is not your hope. Christians, we have lived in a bubble for the last at least 100 years in our country. It has been easy to be a Christian in the United States of America in the last 100 years. But our experience is, is the exception, not the rule. The experience of the church for the last two millennia around the world is persecution and danger and sword and famine and nakedness. And if you're only here for the free stuff, you're not going to last very much longer. Do you love Jesus enough to proclaim him at the risk of the sword? At the risk of your job? At the risk of losing everything that you have? Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as though something strange is happening to you. This is normal. This is what Christians throughout history and around the world have faced. And our hope and our joy is not tied to our experience in this life. But rather our hope and our joy is tied to what awaits us. Amen? And because God loved us and because God adopted us into his family, we know that there's a place at his table. There's a place in his home. And that place will be for eternity. That is our hope. So that's the premise. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the third premise. That's what's true about us. This is true of born-again believers. This is true of everyone who repents of their sin, calls out to Jesus in faith for salvation. This is true. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, it may be latent. It may be suppressed. It may be deep, deep down, and you don't sense it, but it's there. It's a premise. It's true. I'm studying the story of Gideon right now. And what struck me when I first read through it initially, I've read it multiple times, but, but some this time I just paused and, and I'm camping out here on the story of Gideon. And, and the most recent time that I read through the story, what struck me was that the Lord calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. Just after he's described as beating out the wheat in a wine press for fear of the Midianites. And then Gideon responds that he's the least in his family, and his clan is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh. He's the weakest of the weak. And he asks God, how could you possibly use me? How could I save Israel? But here's the difference maker. God said to Gideon, but I will be with you. That's why the story of Gideon is such a powerful story. It's not because Gideon was so powerful himself. It's not that Gideon was the the strongest of the strongest. What makes Gideon's story so powerful is that God was with the weakest of the weak and saw it to victory. God loves to use the weakest of the weak to do the most powerful work. You may feel like a weakling, but if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you and for you and with you. That's why Jesus said to his disciples concerning persecution, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak. Or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Brother and sister, you and I have the very same Holy Spirit dwelling in us that dwelt in the first disciples. That dwelt in Peter and John as they confounded the Jewish council. These uneducated fishermen. They and their fellow first century Christians overturned the world. Why? Because the Holy Spirit led them and they followed, believing that He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. So here's my call to you, Christian stiffen up a little bit, grow a backbone, gain some resilience. Gain some conviction. Stand for something. Raise your heads. The Bible says that you are a super conqueror through him who loves you. That's the premise, that's what's true. Now, here's the promise verse 38 and 39. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I am sure. That represents a certainty that you and I would do well to figure out in our theology. Are you sure about anything? Paul was sure, and because Paul was sure, we can be sure about this. Paul was a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Paul was sure, and we can be sure, that nothing, now if that first list, the tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger or sword, if that was not exhaustive, but representative, this list is exhaustive. He says, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing. That is all-encompassing. This is exhaustive. Now, what is included in powers? Well, certainly, you have human powers like governments, municipalities, and armies. You've got less organized or less authoritative, although no less powerful, social, political movements. The church has seen its fair share of living under dictators and tyrants and dominating leaders. But there's also principalities and powers of evil in the spirit realm. Evil spiritual forces in the heavenly places described in Ephesians 6.2. Where Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Paul says that none of these, whether it's human authority or spiritual authority, has the power to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, nor does anything else in all creation. Now, some of you struggle with your own salvation, believing that somehow, some way, you might be able to lose it. What does paul explicitly say right here nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of god in christ jesus our lord if you have ever been in the love of god through jesus christ our lord if you've ever been saved if you've ever been dwelt by the holy spirit this is the language that paul uses to describe salvation Not if you've ever walked an aisle, not if you've ever been baptized, but rather if you have been born again and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, including you. Do you see how illogical it is to imagine, well, I can somehow separate myself from God? There's something I can do that makes me not saved. Imagine the audacity of placing yourself above powers, rulers, principalities, angels, things high, things low, (laughs) And saying, somehow I'm the exception. Now, here's the point those whom God foreknew, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And watch this those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, everyone who's been justified, everyone who was called, everyone who was foreknown, will be glorified, bar none. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate you, Christian, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, we may walk through extremely trying experiences, and we may feel at times that God has departed from us. We may feel... God, you regard us as sheep to be slaughtered. You may cry out, Oh God, awake, why are you sleeping? O oh Lord. But as much as you may feel this, you must put your faith in God and in the truth of his word over your feelings. You must be sure of God's love and you can be sure because God demonstrated or shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Daniel Doriani offers great advice as we close this morning. He says, every story is unique. but everyone faces the sorrow of dashed dreams, senseless sorrows, or irrational animus. What happens next is the measure of our faith. We should draw on the Psalms of lament, pouring out our sorrows without yielding to despair. God's goal in every trial is to make us more like His Son. We should watch and pray until we discover how that may be true in our case. Three premises and three promises that logically follow in Paul's emotional and spiritual climactic text. God is for you. Who could possibly be against you? God's going to give you everything that you need to do everything he's called you to do, and Jesus is the proof. God justifies you, clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. Who could possibly condemn you. Jesus is our defense. You are more than conquerors and nothing can possibly separate you from God's love. And Jesus is our strength. Amen. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. Jesus is our defender He is our strength and he is the proof that you love us and you will not withhold anything good from us. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the demonstration of your love. And now you have left us with the Holy Spirit to be with us forever. Lord, help us to be sure as Paul was sure with complete, resounding confidence that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.